All right. We have been talking about the contemplative way uh, for the last few weeks and um, also for the last couple of weeks, at least. It seems that current events keep uh, changing my direction as we go through. And uh, this time and this week, I was just so struck by the shooting in Dallas and uh, what was going on down there. And it seems to be just another in a series of such, you know, heinous and and just heart-wrenching uh, events and, and incidents in our nation. And these events are calling to mind and bringing up and putting a finer point on a central issue that has been with us since we've been painting on cave walls. But in relation to the contemplative way, it brings up an important point because these difficulties, these uh these evils in the world that we're, that we're dealing with, either indirectly or directly, break down trust. I mean, there's no other way to put it. It breaks down trust. You know, I want to try to, to delve into a difficult topic this morning, and I'm not even really sure that I can get it all across in just a monologue without you know, some give and take and question and answer, but I'm going to give it a try because it's so centrally important. It's so important for us to, to start to understand what's, what's going on in terms of our reaction to evils and, and incidents and atrocities in the world that we cannot control. Not to mention the ones that are happening in our own lives and the difficulties and the challenges we're facing there. Maybe the first thing that we can do is to try to define evil a bit. Because as some of you who have, most of you who have been here a while, you know that we are looking at things always from an Aramaic point of view because Jesus spoke Aramaic and the New Testament comes out of an Aramaic tradition. So understanding what those first hearers would have understood by Jesus' words is critically important to us getting the sense of his message. And in Aramaic, Hebrew is bisha. And bisha really means unripe. To an ancient agrarian society, something was evil, something was bad, something was not good if it couldn't nourish, if it couldn't sustain the people. And it was taba, it was good if it could. And so good and evil are really ripe and unripe. And so this idea of unripeness when it's applied to a person means someone who is immature, someone who is simply not yet able to perform as a human being should perform, not ready for prime time, if you will. That understanding brings a lot of light to the way God sees us. And if you start reading the New Testament, especially with that idea of evil, whenever it comes up, it changes the tenor, it changes the context of what's going on. Now, can we accurately apply unripeness, this idea of Bisha, to the Dallas shooter? to the Orlando shooters, to anything else that's been going on in our country or in the world for that matter? Yeah, I think we can. It's difficult to do, but we can. And if we can't see fellow humanity, even in those among us who are doing the worst in our world today and creating the most pain and agony today, then how in the world are we ever going to be able to love the enemy, which Jesus said was the highest form of love? How can we do that? See, what Bisha allows us to do is to still see a human being who is not yet capable of, who has been hurt so badly that they cannot live according to standards that we would all agree need to be met in any kind of society, in any kind of community. 
Now, this is not to say that that evil isn't stood against, and this is not to say that you don't use lethal, lethal force to protect those who are being harmed by such a person. But for us to retain that connection, to retain that thread with that person, is so incredibly important. I mean, what in the world was Jesus talking about when he said from the cross as he was being crucified, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They just don't get it. They don't understand. They're bisha. They're immature. They're like little children with their daddy's gun. They just don't get it. And this is not that they were killing him. They were actually mocking him. They were taking pleasure in his pain, in his torment, and eventually in his death. And yet he could still say that. And so understanding this idea of evil that keeps us connected in a human sort of way, even as we prosecute, even as we do what we need to do to protect the innocent, is so important. Now, in terms of the contemplative way, what's the contemplative way? For those of you who are new, the contemplative way of spirituality is a letting go. It's kind of a negative way. Instead of going and acquiring something, striving for something that we need spiritually, it's letting go of all the things that stand in the way of simply seeing what is here now, right in front of us. Because what Jesus was really telling us is that we're not starting from a place of emptiness, a place of lack. We're starting from a place of abundance. The good news is this Father in heaven has already showered everything that can have, that we can have, everything that is possible. But it's our bishaness, <laughs> it's our brokenness, it's all the trauma and all the things that have hurt us, that have pushed us into a defensive crouch, that have made us angry and resentful and hateful, that keep us from seeing what's right in front of us. And so the contemplative way is the way of clearing all that out. Stepping away from everything you think, stepping away from everything that you think you know, stepping away from even your worldview and your biases in order to be able to see what is here now right in front of you, which is God's presence, but seeing him as he is and not through the filter of what you think he is, which always limits and takes it off point. But the moment you do that, what are you doing? You're coming completely vulnerable to the moment, to what's in the moment. To become vulnerable, to drop your shields, to really let yourself go into that place if you don't trust the presence that you're becoming vulnerable to, how is that possible? Well, the short answer is it's not possible. If you don't trust, if you are fearful, there is no way that you can move into this contemplative space. See, the contemplative space is vulnerable and fearless at the same time. Now, those two things we don't put together very well because if you're vulnerable, you're usually fearful, right? <laughs> and if you're fearful, you're certainly not going to drop your shields, drop your defenses, and move into a vulnerable position. To be vulnerable and fearless is what contemplation is all about, what the contemplative way is all about. But these incidents and the way the world is going, I've been getting a lot of emails and texts lately about people who want to talk about this and are dismayed, discouraged, scared about the direction the world is going. Many of them see it as, as a move into the sequence of the end times, and they want to talk about that. They want to try to understand that, which drives more fear, of course. And so this is a big topic. This is what is going on right now. If we can find a way to retain a shred of connection, even with these evildoers, if we can forgive them, in the sense, not that we condone what they're doing, not that we don't prosecute what they're doing, 
but that we let go of the angst, the hatred, and the mistrust that comes out of that for another human being. Guess what we got to do now? turns out we have to do the same thing for God. We have to forgive God. Now, that probably sounds really weird. It sounds weird, and it's leaving my mouth, you know, to forgive God. But many of us are angry at God. Many of us can't understand why God allows this stuff. Is God doing this stuff? Is he actually chastising us? Is he disciplining us? Is he punishing us with all of this? That's one side. But at the very least, he's allowing it to happen, right? And so how do we deal with that? How do we process that? And that anger, that mistrust, that resentment is exactly what we need to let go of, which is what forgiveness means. Forgiveness simply means being set free again from whatever has covered you over and made it impossible for you to see the truth of what is right in front of you. And so we need to find a way to do this. I wanted to read a little bit from uh, Brendan Manning's book, and this came up just last Wednesday, which was part of the, the, the kind of tapestry of my week. But the book is Ruthless Trust, and it is talking about this, this way of trusting God this intimately, this completely. And this chapter is called The Enormous Difficulty, because this is what comes up. This is a blockage to trust. Listen to what he says. He First, he quotes Psalm 89. Forever I will sing the goodness of the Lord. How difficult for me to sing that song when a morning phone call delivered the news that my 41-year-old friend, Rich Mullins, had been killed in a gruesome auto accident just a few hours earlier in Illinois. Without, without explanation, I turned down several requests to speak at memorial services in his honor in Nashville, Wichita, and Chicago. I was lost in the tangled, dark, and frightening inner world of my grief, doubt, fear, and anger over Rich's death. Taste and see the goodness of the Lord, Psalm 34. How hard for Anne Donovan when she delivered a stillborn baby. And she said, those things I relied on, modern science, women's intuition, God's mercy, had failed. And I had nothing to hold on to. When friends offered well-meaning words of condolences, such as, it was God's will. We cannot understand God's will and told her how privileged she should feel now that she has her very own baby angel. Well-meaning, but so harmful. The only taste in her mouth was ashes. Praise the Lord, for he is good, Psalm 135. Scant praise sounded from the people of the Dominican Republic, ravaged by Hurricane George's. Thousands dead, families shattered, tens of thousands homeless, and the economy in ruins. No singing, no tasting, no praising God's goodness for the families devastated by earthquakes in Turkey and Taiwan. Victims whose grieving we heard around the world. The ubiquitous presence of pain and suffering, unwanted, apparently undeserved, and not amenable to explanation or remedy, poses an enormous obstacle to unfailing trust in the infinite goodness of God. How does one dare to propose the way of trust in the face of raw, undifferentiated heartache, cosmic disorder, and the terror of history? Any Christian writer who ignores these grim realities or dismisses them as inconsequential is either naive, dishonest, or disconnected from the truth trust-busting anguish of many struggling seekers and believers. When pain and suffering are conjoined with the monstrous mystery of evil, we come to a crossroads from which there is no turning back. 
You know, I continue to hear messages from, from other church leaders and, and teachers that are implying that if we give our heart to God, if we give our love to God, if we connect with God, then everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be fine. Things are going to be good. If we pray in Jesus' name and, and we pray in, in, in the, the name and the will of the Father, those things are going to be given to us and everything is going to be all right. But I think we know that life isn't all right. Life does mug us, right? And even if we're doing everything correct, everything well, these things still occur. And how are we supposed to resolve that? How do we reconcile that? If we haven't been taught something about this way of suffering and this problem of evil in the world, and how do we deal with that? How, do, how, does, it, how does it actually work? You know, we're... we're tracking this contemplative way here now, and we've got to find a way to put all this together. Now, how do we deal with it? We're looking for an answer, especially here in the West. We're always looking for an answer. We're looking for a way of actually being able to define this, to, to, to put it down in some kind of executive summary so that we understand exactly what's going on. And what we're really looking for is a way to eliminate risk We're looking for a way to be able to move through life without becoming that vulnerable because if we have the answer, if we've got it figured out cognitively, then we can let that go. We don't have to go to that powerless place. And so in doing so, we have all these philosophies and these different ways of looking at the problem of evil. You probably heard the the term theodicy. I don't know if you've heard that before, but it's a branch of philosophy that literally means God's justice or trying to justify God. But it's dealing with this problem of evil. Because if you really look at it, if God is all good and God is all powerful and yet evil exists, well, you can pick any two, but you can't have all three, right? Because if God doesn't stop the evil in the world, then he's not all good. And if he can't stop it, then he's not all powerful. Now, it's interesting that this dilemma only occurs in a monotheistic religion. If you're polytheistic, if you have more than one God, well, then you can have good gods and bad gods, and the problem's solved, right? You know? But as soon as you come down to one God and you say that he's all good and all powerful, you've got a problem. Because we look around and we see, you know, this does not reflect the goodness and the power of this one God. Well, isn't that what Satan's for? We've got Satan. Satan creates all the bad. Well, that's good, and that's, that creates that dualistic, cosmic sort of thing going on there. But God still is not off the hook, is he? Because he's the all-powerful one. And can't he still eradicate the evil if he wants to? You know, what is really going on here? Why is evil still continuing in our world? There are other explanations. The one that I just went through, that God is chastising, he's, he's disciplining, he's teaching, you know, or he's punishing, all those things. Does that make you more trusting toward God? You know, we have a 20-year-old son who's becoming a bit of a problem, and we're going to have to start to work with him, you know? And there's going to be some discipline, and there's going to be some chastisement, and there's going to be this and that. But you know, there's a difference between allowing him to face the consequences of his actions or inactions and actually putting something in his path that sabotages his way in order to teach him. I would never do that, you know? I may take his computer away or his Xbox away, you know, those sorts of things. But to put something in his path that's really debilitating in order to teach him a lesson, you know, I figure life's going to do that for him if he doesn't start finding a way through. But I'm not going to do that. 
And so if I wouldn't do that to my son, and I believe that God would do that to me, that's not engendering trust. See, whatever framework, whatever idea, explanation we come up with for this problem of evil, if it doesn't allow us to trust our God, then what good is it? Because trust is the basic relationship that we need to have with anybody, but also with our God. If we're really going to live this life with vulnerability, with openness. Now, there's another idea. Well, the evil doesn't really come from God. Evil is the result of the consequences of our choices, the choices of others, right? Or just the workings of nature that are really neither good nor bad. In fact, in the long run, they're good. Because, you know, for instance, plate tectonics being what they are, life on this planet isn't possible without them. But it's not a great thing if your house is on the fault line when it goes off, right? Now we consider it bad. We assign good and bad, good and evil to things that either forward or frustrate our agendas and the outcomes that we want to see. But these things are just part of life. God actually isn't doing them, but he's still not off the hook because he's allowing them, right? So maybe that one doesn't work so well. How about this one? Pain is necessary to growth. It's just like working out. No pain, no gain, right? It's just like childbirth. It's the pain of childbirth that brings forth a child, and once the child is there, the pain is forgotten. I've heard. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> You'll have to let me know. <laughs> but there you go. You know, okay, pain is necessary. All right, does that help? Uh, wounding is always a motivator. The hero's journey that we've talked about in here often, always begins with a wounding. A wounding is always a motivator to move into the next phase of life. Without that pain, without that instigator, you know, we tend to just want to stay where we are. Okay, that's great. And all of these possibly are true, but they're also not helpful either. And that's the problem. All of these ideas and any idea, any explanation that we try to come up with for this problem is going to fall short when the chips are down. It's going to fall short when we are in the middle of our grief, in the middle of our mourning. And it turns out that there's really no intellectual answer that is going to make any difference when we have been hurt so deeply and the grief is moving through us. There is no way to do this. Yesterday, I had the, the honor of officiating Barbara Briggs' memorial. Do you remember Barbara? She was the, the woman who, who got cancer uh, she was, found out she had cancer about a year ago and she, she was actually doing pretty well for a while. She came in here on Sundays. We prayed over her. Well, she died four weeks ago, five weeks ago, and the memorial service was yesterday morning. And you're standing there up in front of you know, a couple hundred people. It, and I expressed this. I'm always struck with the fact there are no words here that I can say that's going to take away the grief. There's no, there's no words I can say that should ever take away the grief. If there was a word that I could say that took away the grief of, of losing a mother, a friend, a sponsor, a sponsee, you know, a sister, then it trivializes the nature of that relationship. A real relationship, a real connection, when it is severed, is going to put a person on a journey on a path that has to be lived through. It can't be talked through. There's no answer to this. And to say something like, oh, you just lost your child, the stillborn child, for someone to come up and say, well, God needed another angel in heaven, and so you know, he, he brought your child to brighten up heaven. How in the world is that supposed to help? 
How does that work? Yet we try these things and we keep trying these things with all good intentions and we do them philosophically and we do them colloquially, but the point is they don't answer the question. How do we answer this question? Is there an answer to the question? Jesus said something really interesting and you can see if you uh, look at your bulletins, it's there. It's very short though. He just said at Matthew 5, 4, he said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, that's a weird statement to Western ears. Blessed are you when you mourn? Oh, wait. Mourning hurts, right? (laughs) Mourning is grief, right? Mourning is loss. Mourning is being cut off from the thing that you love, the thing that maybe you thought was your salvation, was, was, was your life. You're blessed when you're mourning? How is that possible? Because the mourning... The grief, the pain, is the proof that the relationship was real. It was real. Otherwise, you wouldn't be feeling the grief. You're blessed when you mourn because you have known true connection. You've known true relationship. And you will be comforted if you lean into the mourning and find the connection that is still possible right here and right now. Looking out at that group watching their faces, hearing the laughter, seeing the tears. I always love to watch the faces of a group when the slideshow is playing. It's just amazing. Frame by frame going through, you watch the group, and it's kind of like wind blowing over a field of grain where you see waves of all the smiles come out at certain images and then the darkening over other images because they're being drawn into their own personal memories But watching that connection, watching the heads on the shoulders, watching the little knots and groups talking and hugging, you're watching the healing process taking place. You're seeing people move into connection. The only place, the only time that mourning or grief hurts us is when we try to avoid the pain, try to pull away from the emotions, and we don't go through the journey. Now, all of that stuff remains and goes toxic. But blessed are those who mourn, who actually engage in the process, even for their own grief or the grief of another, because they will be comforted by the connection that they restore and receive and understand. That's not an answer to a question, but it's a way of living through. And this is what we're trying to understand here. This is what Jesus is trying to bring us to understand. The pain will guide us if we move into it you know but there's no answer the way we imagine an answer maybe the answer to life is there is no answer to life but there is a way of living life the oldest book in the bible is understood to be job by most scholars are you familiar with the book of job yeah why do scholars think it's the oldest book you know There's no dates on manuscripts. Even if we had an original manuscript, we wouldn't even know if it was original manuscript by now. You know? And there's no dates on anything. They use internal evidence. They're doing kind of uh, linguistic forensics, I suppose, if you want to take a look at it that way. They're just looking at what's going on. When you look at the book of Job and you read the book of Job, there's never any mention of the law. There's never any mention of Moses. There's never any mention of anything that happens from the Mosaic period on. And so obviously scholars then, you know, understand that it was written before that time. The name of God in the middle part of the poem, because it's an actual poem, is an ancient name of God. It's El Elohim, which was one of the first names of God of the Jews. But interestingly enough, in the first 
chapter and the last half of the last chapter, the name of God is changed to Yahweh, Y-H-V-H, which is a later name of God. And so most scholars believe that those end caps, the very beginning and the very end, were added later to the story. So those of you who don't know the story of Job, in the very beginning, Job is bragging on his servant, I'm sorry, God is bragging on his servant Job up in heaven. And the devil says, yeah, well, it's really easy for him to be good, Hasatan, Satan, because, you know, everything is going really well. Look at all the stuff he's got. So God gives Satan, that kind of makes a wager with him, permission to make Job's life difficult. Just don't kill him, he says. And so Satan goes down and Job gets the boils and Job loses his livestock and loses his children and everything starts to go sideways. And he's wailing and throwing ashes on his head and his wife says, just curse God and be done with it, but he won't do it. Right? Then three of his friends come and they're supposed to be comforting him, but little comfort do they bring because what they're bringing is a philosophical argument. And basically the argument is, Job, if all these bad things are happening to you, it's because you did something wrong. That's the way this thing works, all right? And Job is protesting, I haven't done anything wrong, I'm righteous, I'm okay, you know? But Eliphaz come, Bildad comes, Zophar comes, each one of them brings their arguments, and it's a debate that's going back and forth between the two of them. And they do one whole round of this, then they do a second round of this. And if you read the content there, it's so well thought out. You realize this poem is the product of generations, perhaps centuries of thought on this issue. This issue of the problem of evil has been with us from the very beginning. Since we were painting on cave walls, we've been thinking about this. And this first book shows that there was so much thought before that that was brought into this. Finally, a young man who's overhearing this conversation gets fed up with all the old guys, and he jumps in, Elihu, And he says, you know, you guys are all wrong. And then he comes in with another point of view. And then Job refutes that. Finally, the Lord comes at the very near the end of the book, four chapters from the end of the book, and speaks to Job from the whirlwind, from the center of a storm. And that's where I wanted to pick up right here at Job 38. Because listen how... God answers Job after all of this discourse, after all of this trying to figure this out, justification and accusations back and forth. The Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind and says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you instruct me. Do you ever think God could be sarcastic? (laughs) This whole passage is dripping with sarcasm. Take a listen. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched out the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it, and I set a bolt and doors, and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here your proud waves shall stop. Some of the most beautiful imagery you can imagine. You just picture that. But where were you? Where were you when all this was being done? In other words, what is the Lord really saying to Job? I'm God. You're not. Get over it. I mean, what other answer could there be? 
You know, God has a much higher consciousness than ours, and we are all just looking around saying, why don't you just explain it to us? Just explain it to us, Lord. I remember a line from a movie that said, you have a higher consciousness than a cockroach. When was the last time you tried to explain yourself to one of them? It's not that God regards us as cockroaches. It's that there are things that we can't possibly know. There are things that don't compute. There are things that can't, we can't understand. If God really does stand outside of space and time, if he created this whole bubble that in which we live, then how in the world with finite minds and finite language are we going to be able to comprehend the reasons that he's trying to tell us, the reasons behind the things he's done? Finally, Job comes around, and this, this response by God goes on for four chapters. <laughs> four chapters. Over, and, and all of the imagery. I mean, the, the poet who wrote this is just amazing. He brings in every bit of creation, and it's just beautiful, gorgeous. Sometime go ahead and, and read Job 38 to 42, and just listen to the, the music of it. But finally, in, in chapter 42, Job answers, and he answers the Lord, and he says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. He takes that line and turns it around. I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract. <laughs> and I repent in dust and ashes. He retracts. He retracts all the justification. He retracts everything that he was saying for all of these 38 chapters before, 38 verses before, 38 chapters. And just realizes and starts to rest in the fact that he can be a dependent. He can be a loved and cherished child who doesn't need to know all of the Father's business, just needs to know that he's loved, just needs to know that he's cared for. Can we do that? You know, there's no answer to life that we can get that will soothe us, that will make us feel that there is no risk. There's only the experience of life. And what do we experience in life? If we really embrace life, not just the good parts, not just the parts we want, but we embrace all of it, we become completely present to whatever the moment's bring, moment is bringing, then what are we really going to experience in life? We're going to begin to see the shape of life. We're going to be able to see the shape of the journey the fact that it is always a descent before an ascent, that that shape, the shape of the cross, Jesus dying, moving into the grave and coming back up again to new life, the shape of all the 40s, you know, going into the wilderness, going into Egypt, going into the ark, all the 40s were a descent, a time of trial and testing, into a rebirth, into a time of ascent. That shape of life begins to assert itself we see it over and over again. We see the cycles and we start to see the pattern of how when we do descend and everything looks like ashes, we come out on the other side as long as we don't give up, as long as we persevere, as long as we don't lose our ability to trust. So it's presence in all circumstances that leads to the hope and the contentment in all circumstances that Paul talks about. I have learned to be content 
in all circumstances, Paul says. It was a journey. It was something he had to learn how to do. He didn't get it downloaded. He didn't read it out of a book. There was no answer. There was something that had to take place to see how everything in life has its place, has its part. And most importantly, we begin to see the fullness of this love of God. Love, not in a romantic sense, not in a greeting card sort of sentiment, you know, that, that has you know, feelings and affections, but this radical, furious love of God. A love that is so radical, so unconditional, as, as, as G.K. Chesterton said, so furious that it doesn't sometimes look like love or feel like love as we understand love because it includes the pain. It includes the suffering. It includes that stark vulnerability that we fear so much. But the full expression and the full experience of love is the closest that we're ever going to get to an answer to this question. I want to read a little bit from Richard Rohr. And it's also in your bulletins. And just see how he tries to express the same thing that we're driving at here. He writes from Everything Belongs, I believe with all my heart that the gospel is all about the mystery of forgiveness. When you get forgiveness, you get it. We use the phrase falling in love. I think forgiveness is almost the same thing. It's a mystery we fall into. The mystery is God. God forgives all things for being imperfect, broken, and poor. Not only Jesus, but all the great people who pray that I have met in my life say the same thing. That's the conclusion that they come to. The people who know God well, the mystics, the hermits, those who risk everything to find God, always meet a lover, not a dictator. God is a lover who receives and forgives everything. Forgiveness breaks down the entire world of meritocracy and the notion of deservedness or entitlement. Our logic of quid pro quo is useless in the realm of spirit. We want to create a system inside of which we can succeed and win, in which forgiveness has no role. We want to earn salvation and prove ourselves superior. But forgiveness reveals both God's nature and ours. Apparently, God is actually vulnerable. And we discover both God and ourselves in the mystery of that vulnerability. It's almost too much to imagine and doesn't lend itself to organized religion at all. It's a mystery we are dipped into. Two-thirds of Jesus' teachings are about forgiveness. A good third of Jesus' parables are about forgiveness, directly or indirectly. Forgiveness has nothing to do with logic. It's the final breakdown of it. It is a mystical recognition that human evil is something we are trapped by, suffering from, and participating in. It calls forth weeping, humility, and healing much more than feverish attempts to root out the evil. The transformation happens through tears much more than through threats and punishments. So why is forgiveness so central? Because evil and brokenness exists. That's why. There is no forgiveness without evil, without brokenness, because if there weren't any of that, there'd be nothing to forgive. Everything would be perfect, right? Forgiveness is central because evil 
exists. Imperfection exists. Fear, brokenness exists in our lives. But now the question becomes, why does the evil exist? We're back to that again. We still haven't answered that. I want to submit to you, the evil exists because perfect love exists. What? Okay, wait, you lost me there. Think about it this way. Is it still love if the love was not chosen freely? If love was coerced in any way, is it still love? See, to me, love is dependent on a completely free choice. If the choice wasn't free, the love is not real. How do we know that the choice is real? Because some people don't choose love. They choose something else. There is no free choice, no real free choice, without evil, which is the proof that the choice was real in the first place. Does this make sense? Now, you may not agree to those terms, but I really ask that you would at least think about them. Think about them. There is no love without a free choice, and there is no free choice without evil existing. In other words, evil exists in this world because perfect love is real. And that is the weirdest thing to say. But it exists because perfect love is evil. God is perfect love. And perfect love sets everything perfectly free. Love doesn't try to hold on. Love doesn't coerce. Think about 1 Corinthians 10.13, right? All those attributes of love. It's right there. Love sets everything free, allows it to do what it needs to do, because if it's not free, it can't love in return. In other words, God actually risked losing us in order to have us. By giving us the free choice that was necessary for us to be able to really be created in his image, which is to have the choice to actually love, he had to risk the fact that many people were not going to choose it. Not now, maybe not ever, I don't know, but certainly not now. That's not our experience in life. And this makes God vulnerable. God vulnerable? How in the world is God vulnerable? Well, Jesus was vulnerable, wasn't he? The moment we love anything, we put ourselves at risk. The moment we love anything, we become vulnerable. Jesus loved. Jesus became vulnerable because of that love. Ever watch all these superhero shows and movies and things? You know, the superhero who's so strong and so invulnerable. How does a superhero become vulnerable? As soon as the superhero loves another person, that person makes them vulnerable. Now they have to protect that person. They can't do whatever they would do because this person could be harmed, right? Isn't that the way it always works? That's why Batman can't fall in love. Because as soon as he falls in love, then he's got to worry about his beloved. You know, it's the person we love that makes us vulnerable. The person, God is vulnerable for our sakes. He gave us this ability. God is vulnerable through us. And Jesus was one with the Father, and he showed his own vulnerability. He reveled in his vulnerability. He said, that's the way we're supposed to live life. You want to be first, you be last. You want to find your life, you lose it. You want to sit at the head of the table? You want to be the leader? Then you become the servant. He was talking about vulnerability and humility constantly. We've got to think about this stuff. 
Got to bring it into some sort of perspective. And that means we've got to face a, a basic premise that we have laid out in this whole problem of evil. And that is this question. Was the world really meant by God to be perfectly good? As we understand perfectly good. We say evil should not exist and we're trying to eradicate it. And we look forward to a time when it wouldn't exist. Is that true? Would a world without evil be a world where love is possible at all? Or because a world without evil would have to be coerced into those choices, love is no longer possible? I don't know the answer to these questions, but I want to pose the questions correctly because there is a reason that evil exists in this world. And if we can't understand that in such a way that we can still trust our God, wholeheartedly, then we will never be able to be free enough, fearless enough to become vulnerable ourselves. And without our own vulnerability, we can never love. We can never be in relationship. And we will forever stand outside of this kingdom that was so precious to our Lord. It's a difficult thing. You know, I know how this sounds. I know it's crazy. It sounds blasphemous. But as we stand against evil, as love demands that we do, it's the persistence of evil that breaks down the trust and the love and and the vulnerability ultimately, this ability to love. But if we somehow see that the evil is proof of the freedom of our choice and we start to understand that that means perfect love is persisting as well, we can hold on to our trust of God and we can remain willing to be vulnerable which means you've got to hold a real paradox in one embrace, and it's not an easy thing to do. But that's what Jesus said this was all about. It's about staying that place of sacred tension. I wanted to read one more thing before we close. And this is from um, a passage from my book, The uh, Fifth Way, um, but it really is centering around an email that I got. An email arrived from a 34-year-old Texas mother of three who was recently laid off from her full-time job and suffering a full-blown spiritual crisis. This is from her. Quote, Some months I don't even allow myself to ponder the questions because when I do, I can't stop. In the bathroom, crying out to God or whoever is in charge out there that may be listening, I have been in and out of depressions, unsure of anything, searching for an elusive answer. But I've come to the realization that I may never find what I'm looking for. I must say, and I hope you will not take offense, that I honestly don't even know if God exists. I'm like a lost sheep at this time in my life, crying out silently with questions that no man can answer. Who are we? Why are we here? Who am I? How can generations of people be lied to? My questions go even deeper, and unfortunately, I'm told that it's a matter of faith to know the answers. The sad thing is that I want to have faith, but have none left. I'm afraid of being deceived. Every single religious group out there thinks that they have the corner on the market of truth. But how can this be? In my heart, I want to go back to being nine years old and believing that there is a good God and there is a Savior who cares for me, even if no one else does. But I can't. We corresponded for some weeks, and though she was always appreciative of my attempts, I never got the impression that I had explained anything to her satisfaction. I wanted so badly to cradle that little nine-year-old girl inside her and somehow let her know that everything was going to be all right, 
that answers can and do come in ways most unexpected. Maybe if I could just find the right words, I thought. After a while, she just stopped writing. Yeshua, Jesus, couldn't really explain it to anyone's satisfaction either. There are no words for such a job. In the throes of a pain so deep that who am I becomes a meaningless string of words. Jesus' own words, I and the Father are one, seem equally meaningless. It's only in the process of being loved, experiencing love, that an identification with that love and with the source of that love begins to take on substance and meaning as the only possible answer to the question. When I and this love are one is a big moment, a moment when life makes sense. In the face of everything I can't know, in the face of the uncertainty, pain, and panic, I can at least start with what I do know. I can at least do that. And if I listen carefully, if I read between the lines, Yeshua is always trying to tell me that no matter where I am in life, no matter what I'm feeling, no matter how much I think I've failed or how unworthy I am, how much I feel unlovely and therefore unlovable, how much I question whether God can really accept me or whether I can accept the risk of really laying myself down, at any time, at any moment, I can stop, I can turn around, and represent myself to God. Always. It's that simple and that difficult. And in the moment I stop and turn to look, no matter how many times that may be, he will be right there, or perhaps running up the road to tackle me. He'll be right there because he always was and was never anywhere else. And he'll have a soft look on his face, as I'm shifting and sweating and reeling off all the words I've rehearsed to try to explain myself, to try to convince him and persuade him to take me back until the moment I'm ready to let him mercifully stop me and say close to my ear, Honey, relax. It's okay. It's all right. Hush now. You had me at hello. Let's pray. Father, your love is something that is near impossible for us to fully understand and embrace. Help us to stop trying to understand it and find ways to just experience it. Help us in the midst of all the difficulties in our own lives and the growing instability of our world around us and the things that may be coming to us in the future, that we don't get too afraid to open up and continue to love everyone around us, love the moments that we have, the connections that still remain. Help us not to give up. Help us not to move into a defensive crouch and lose the connection that is the source of everything in you. Father, you know how difficult this is. You know how fearful we are. Help us to just continue to turn and face you. To let go, to throw the dice and find out that you really are here and always are here for us. Thank you for loving us the way that you do, Lord. Thank you for continuing to have this infinite patience for us as we do this dance. And we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand.